Well, hello and welcome to The Hills. So glad that you've joined us, whether you're live at one of our three campuses or online or maybe listening later on podcast. Uh, my name is Taylor, and uh, if you're local uh, around our community, I hope that you've managed to stay cool somehow as we're starting to get the real summer heat coming in. Maybe that was uh, poolside, maybe that was in some air conditioning, maybe with the TV on watching the Olympics as they kicked off this weekend. So real quick, live at all of our campuses, show of hands, who's watched some Olympics so far? We got, yeah, we, we got a fair number of hands out there. So I'll, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm a huge Olympics fan. Grow, grew up in a family where every four years we would just like, we would try and keep up with as much as possible and, and just all the pomp and circumstance of it. I just love all of it. And I'm, I'm trying to embed that in my family. So my, my four-year-old, as he's watching with me, he's starting to realize in his mind that the Olympics means we watch TV for two weeks straight. And he's kind of right, but I'm trying to help him understand that's not actually how it is. But... One of the hallmarks of the Olympic uh, Games is all of the personal stories that are told about the athletes. Because with so many events and so many different uh, people involved, stories are the way that they get you to actually care. And so you'll hear the, the, the announcers when they see somebody who's starting to warm up that this is, this is the young rookie who is out to prove herself in the pool. Or this, this is the, the veteran volleyballer who's going for gold one more time. Uh, or maybe this is Simone Biles and she's going to get all the awards and all of the gold because she's just incredible. Like whatever it is, the stories are what they use to get you invested because stories are what we tell in order to make sense of the world in which we live. Now, I, I want to talk to somebody who might be new to our church, or maybe somebody who's been part of our church for a while, but you might describe yourself as a skeptic. I'm so glad that you're with us or listening in, and wherever you are on the spiritual spectrum, I hope that all of us can agree that stories are essential for the life that we live because information alone has no meaning in a vacuum. Raw data is not useful for us until it is found in its story or context. That's not just true of Olympic coverage. Let me give you an example. So here's, here's a piece of raw data. Someone is saying, I'm on fire. That's the raw data. Someone's saying, I'm on fire. So in order to make sense of that, we need to find it in a larger story. So the story might be that there is a candlelit dinner table and two people sitting across from each other and, and uh, a, a young man reaches across to grab the hand of his beloved, not realizing his shirt is over the candle's flame and looks down and says, I'm on fire. Well, then it means one thing, but it means something completely different if it is on the basketball court and someone has been making shot after shot after shot and after six in a row, they say, I'm on fire. It means something entirely different if it is not someone saying it, but if it is Bruce Springsteen or Alicia Keys singing it, it means something completely different. And after the first service, I had somebody walk up and say, and it means something different if you've just had some Takis on Fuego or Flamin' Hot Cheetos. Like, it, all of these mean something different. The story helps us to rightly understand the data or the information because life is more than just facts. In life... We make sense of the world through story. And that's not just true of Olympic coverage, and it's not just true of pop singles from 2012. Students, if you know a song from more recent related to fire, please let me know. But it's how we make sense, not just at an individual level, it's how we make sense of life itself. 
religions tell a story. Cultures tell some kind of story. Philosophies, organizations, at any level, you're going to find that there is some story being told that people are invited to live into. These are often referred to as meta-narratives because they're not always stories that are overtly told. See, inside of a religious community or a faith community, the story told is pretty overt. I mean, I'm about to do some of that right now. But inside of culture, the story can be so embedded that sometimes it's not just what we overtly think, but the story is what we take for granted in the first place. Let me give you an example. Historically, imperialism and colonialism told a particular story took for granted that there were some supposedly, quote-unquote, civilized people who would go bravely to reach lands where they could teach, quote-unquote, primitive people the right way to live. And that affected choices because people lived into that story. In our own nation, for generations, there's been the story of the American dream. Now, modern generations are a little bit disenchanted with it, but here's a little bit how that story went. In the American dream, in the land of opportunity, if you, if you work hard, dream big, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, then someday you too can have that house in that quaint neighborhood with the white picket fence and 2.3 kids in your own garage and backyard so you never have to talk to your neighbors if you don't want to. Consumerism tells the story that the more you have, the better off you'll be. And if you can't buy happiness, you can buy the next best thing, more stuff. All of these different stories are on offer today with many more that we could give example of. But here's a question we need to wrestle with. What was the story Jesus told? When Jesus came into the world, had his public teaching ministry as a Jewish rabbi, starting out from a small town in Israel, what was the story that he told? And why are we still talking about that story today? In his very first sermon, here was the story Jesus told, Mark chapter 1. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus came telling a story about a kingdom sometimes called the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus would tell, tell parables, word pictures, to help explain this story. It was like a, a mustard seed that would grow and multiply. The kingdom of God was like a, a treasure hidden in a field. He talked about the kingdom of God more than anything else in his entire ministry. You cannot look at the four gospels and the things Jesus taught and think that the main theme was anything other than the story of God's kingdom. That's why when he taught his disciples to pray, he said that you'd pray to God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That there was some kingdom of God, some heavenly kingdom now available and breaking into the world like never before. A kingdom where what God wanted was what took place. And so as the disciples heard this, they heard it and they thought, Jesus, that means if there's a kingdom and you're announcing it and you're saying you're bringing it, you must, be, you must be the king. The Jewish word for this was Messiah. 
And so they pin their hopes on Jesus being one who would bring an earthly kingdom, kick out the Romans who who were over Israel in the Roman Empire, and instead that they would establish a new kingdom on earth, Israel 2.0, the real deal, the way it always should be, with the Messiah, the King, Jesus. And yet Jesus then died on a cross, was buried, and the disciples thought, well, he, he must not be king. And three days later, he rose from the grave And they started to look at his ministry, his teaching, in a new light. Which is why when the gospel writers start telling the story of Jesus, and even the story of the cross, they help bring in this theme of Jesus as king, and the kingdom coming into the world. So I want to show you this. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 15. We're going to let Mark kind of anchor us for this section of the sermon. And over this series, we have been talking about the cross And as we've looked at the cross from a few different angles, in week one we talked about the scandal, the foolishness of the cross. In week two we talked about about what Jesus accomplished on the cross as our perfect sacrifice who died in our place, who defeated sin. This week, as we look at the cross, we need to help connect two things that often seem disconnected for us. It's been said before that the kingdom is often how we talk about making this fallen world better for now. And the cross is how we talk about God helping us escape this world and go to heaven someday. But when we look at what happens inside the witness of Scripture, we don't see those two things separated. We see a connection. And I want to show you this in Mark chapter 15. We'll let a few other uh, gospel passages fill in the gaps for us. In Mark 15 verse 2, here's the, the first question that the Roman governor Pilate asks Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. You've said so, Jesus replied. John 18 fills in the gap of what follows where Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. This was the official charge against Jesus as far as Rome was concerned. It wasn't that Jesus was some Jewish heretic, which is how the Jewish leaders felt, but it was instead that Jesus was a pretender to the throne of Caesar. Caesar in that day was known as Divius Filius, the son of a god. That was actually inscribed, son of a god, on the coinage with the emperor's face. That was how Caesar was seen as connected in some way to the deities And so the soldiers knew this, and they knew also that Jesus had been charged as pretending to be an alternative king. So in Mark 15, you skip down to verse 17, the soldiers put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him, and they began to call out to to him, Hail, King of the Jews. This was some of their intended mockery based on his charge. Matthew takes the mockery even further. In Matthew 27, they put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. Mark continues that after this mockery and Jesus is made to carry his crossbeam out to the place where he would die, Mark 15 verse 25 says it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. 
John's gospel lets us know this was written in several different languages so that anyone passing by would have this message that Jesus, the one being crucified, was the king of the Jews. People who would pass by and read that sign would hurl insults at Jesus, along with the religious leaders who had wanted this to happen all along. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Well, Jesus knew to be the king of this new kind of kingdom, he could not come down, but he would remain on the cross to accomplish all that we've talked about, to pay for the sins of the world, to be our perfect sacrifice. But through this, all of that took place, and Jesus was nailed to that cross by these soldiers who were loyal to the emperor, the son of a God. And throughout all of the gospel of Mark, no one recognizes who Jesus really is. Nobody sees him as the real king until this moment when Jesus dies on the cross and of all people it is a Roman centurion and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died he said surely this man was the son of God what are the gospel writers doing here they are saying that there is an alternative kingdom to the kingdom of Rome and Caesar. That for, that for a Greek, a Roman, who would have heard that message for the very first time, they would have understood very clearly if this Roman soldier is saying this, this Jew on a cross who died is actually the son of God, not just the son of a God, but the son of God, then Caesar can't be. There's an alternative kingdom with a better king. This was the subversive, countercultural story of the kingdom that the apostles went out into to the world proclaiming, that the gospel writers make clear. Because once we realize that that same Jesus who died on a cross rose from the grave three days later, and he says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. Go with the news of the kingdom. Go with the message of the kingdom. Go living the life of the kingdom. And if you're wondering, so what is that kingdom life? What does this mean? It means that, we're, it means that we're God's rule and reign is at work and visible wherever the kingdom is breaking into the world. And the gospel writers, what they do in this crazy way is that they help, they help people see what happened in Jesus' mockery and the crown of thorns and being taken to the cross when we see this in light of the resurrection, one of the scandals of the cross is that this was not Jesus' defeat as a pretender king. This was Jesus' coronation. To be sent to the cross as not only the king of the Jews, but the king of the world. And it means, here's the story of the kingdom. It means that Jesus invites people into a new kind of life in his kingdom. A kingdom in which he announced this kingdom, and he himself was the king. His coronation was on a cross, and he rises from the grave, and that is confirmation that he, in fact, is king over all heaven and earth, and his kingdom is now available at hand and through his church breaking into the world. That's the message of the kingdom. That's the story. And like every other story on offer, 
To believe that story is to be invited into it, to live into that story. So if you're taking notes, kingdom life is shaped by the story of the cross. The kingdom and the cross are not these two separate things that we don't really quite understand. No, they're interwoven such that living inside the kingdom of the crucified king means we will be invited to follow him and become, as, uh, as one writer puts it, cruciform, shaped by the cross. Now, we need to understand in Jesus' ministry, he was upfront about this. Well before he was put on a Roman cross, in Luke 9.23, Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Matthew 10.38, Jesus says it even more plainly, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Somewhere along the way, we lost the plot of the story of the cross. We've, empath- we've emphasized often one part of that story, that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. And that is true. But the story doesn't end there. We forgot this other part of the story. Jesus calls everyone in his kingdom to a life shaped by the cross. A life marked by self-denial and by following their crucified Savior by taking up their own cross. Jesus made this plain as day to his disciples and to people who would come eagerly saying, Jesus, I'm ready to follow you and be part of your kingdom. And then he would say things like this. And yet in Western Christianity too often, uh, because we, we want so badly to make sure that somebody who's new uh, hears the, the best message in the best light possible, we are guilty often of leaving this in the fine print. When in fact, we need to make sure we understand the story of the cross doesn't just mean something as a get out of hell free card, you go live the rest of your life. The story of the cross is to be invited into a kingdom where we are shaped more and more into the image of Jesus, the one who went to the cross. To live into his kingdom that has upside down values compared to the world. That's why in week one we said this is foolishness to the world and to the stories that we so often live by. And here's the challenge. Author Jeremy Treat points this out in his book, Seek First. It's possible to believe the facts of the cross, Jesus came as God, died for our sins. It's possible to believe the facts of the cross and still live guided by another story. To let let another story be the thing that really shapes me. And so I have raw data about God that that, that he decided to, to pay for my sins. I have raw data about Jesus that he died on the cross and there you go, there's this kind of uh, spiritual transaction that takes place. But I actually live guided by another story that's out in the world. I live guided by another story that is my own kingdom and what I want. This is the challenge. Now I hope, I hope, I want to communicate my love and care for you because I'm stepping on my own toes too, okay? It's, it's too easy for us to suddenly feel like, man, we were going to talk about the cross. Isn't this all about grace? This feels like bait and switch. But what we have to understand is, man, if we said in week one, the man on the middle cross said, I could come, where did he say you could come? Into his kingdom. 
his way of life, his rule and reign, which means we die to our own way of doing things. In the kingdom of the crucified king, we're not just saved by the cross. We're going to be shaped by it. Jesus is not only our perfect Messiah, he is also our model. And he says, come follow me. That's why the Apostle Paul would say, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. To find your story no longer with you in charge of how, how it's all going to work out, but instead surrendering it to Jesus and letting him shape it in the image of his cross. Here's a way to think about it. Um, the Irish have a, a, a tradition of high crosses. I want to show you a picture of one of them. This is uh, two, two sides of the same cross from around 900 AD. And while some of the artwork is a little bit primitive to us, uh, all of these different shapes and figures are helping to tell and, and depict stories from inside the Bible. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. David fighting Goliath as a boy the multitude in Revelation who are saved. There's all these different pictures of the Bible inside this high cross, and yet the entire story has taken the shape of the cross. And author Scott McKnight says, the same should be true for our lives, that our entire lives begin to take the shape and yield to the direction of the cross. This is for all of us to live into. Somehow when we lost the plot, we turned the cross into something that only benefits us without transforming us. To use some language from Eugene Peterson, let's train our imagination from speculation to participation. Because if we have faith in Christ, we've already participated in the cross because our old way of life, the old stories we live by, died on that cross and they don't have the power over us they used to. This is why Paul would say something that sounds upside down to us in Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God lives in us to help lead us into this kingdom way of life. And what is that going to look like? Taking up our cross, living into the story of the cross, the story of the cross leads us to self-giving love. That's where it's going to lead. That's what it's going to shape in us. Because if we're really letting the story of the cross shape our lives, we will inevitably be drawn to love in the ways that Jesus loved. Here's one of his followers, the Apostle John. He says in 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Pause for a second. The stories of the world and alternative kingdoms have a lot of different ways to tell us what love is. Love can be, in some cases, a transaction. I give you this, you give me that. In some cases, love can be a, a way to self-fulfillment and validation through someone else. Love can be, man, this beautiful feeling as I pursue romance with this person. And yet, all of those definitions need to be set aside and nailed to the cross so that now this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. 
and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. You cannot define love in the kingdom apart from Jesus, and you cannot understand Jesus apart from his cross. That means that Christian love is going to be shaped by the cross. Now, I want to give you some examples of how this love plays itself out, but, but even the examples I'm going to give are, are, are so few for time constraints. All throughout the New Testament, the, the apostles, the church planners, those writing to the church inspired by the Holy Spirit, keep coming back to the story of the cross. Every time they have some directive, some, some new ethic to live by, it's always shaped by the cross, connected to the cross. Here's some examples. The ethic of forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. How did God in Christ forgive us? By looking at us, not, not after we'd come around and said we were sorry, not after we'd admitted that we were wrong, but even in the midst of our sin, while Jesus Christ was being mocked and beaten and crucified, he was speaking forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That we can look at the actions of others and realize they're living by a, by a story that is deceiving them and forgive them. Why? How can, how, how can I do that, Taylor? Because you don't understand the ways I've been hurt. You don't understand what's been done to me. Listen, when we look through the lens of the cross... Forgiveness is not about excusing behavior. It is about realizing Jesus already died to pay for their sins. So if God has offered them forgiveness in the midst of their sin, I can too. I can't do that with my own human heart, but I can do that with the Spirit of God working in me to have a kingdom-shaped life. Generosity, 2 Corinthians 8. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. We've got this metaphor of, of an economy of grace. Coming back to the story of the cross. It, you know, it makes me think about, as we've celebrated this weekend for our church, Renew Weekend and, and the incredible generosity God has worked and brought about through you, I just want to, I want to give you one example of, of, of what, what has led to this kind of generosity. Earlier this summer, I had a member of our church walk up and, and tell me that after Renew Weekend, uh, he and his wife were, were convicted and led to, to, to evaluate what they were giving and had planned on giving for Renew. And as they talked, they, they said, you know, we've got, that, we've got that trip coming up for our 44th anniversary, that, that vacation. And, and so they, they canceled their plans they deferred those funds to renew. And then for their 44th anniversary meal, they decided to go to Taste Project, one of our Renew partners, and they wrote a big old check for the meal that they did. And I was like, that's, that's incredible. That's beautiful. I was smiling. What surprised me was he was smiling wider than me while he was telling. And he said, this it was our best anniversary yet. Because in the way of the cross, the story of the cross doesn't end on Good Friday. It leads to Easter Sunday. And so he had resurrection hope because of the sacrifice. Sacrifice does not become a chore for us. It becomes a way of surrender by which God lifts us up in his power, in his grace, that looks like foolishness to the world. 
You gave up a vacation. How in the world could you be full of joy because of the spirit of God and living into the story of the cross? It's God's way of doing things. It's his kingdom. He does it, not us. So when we live into this, this happens for every household. Ephesians 5, 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There are some versions of the story of marriage that it is just a ball and chain and man, it's, it's just a, it's a headache and it's just, some, you know, whatever it is. And yet in the story of the cross, it is one of the means by which God leads those who choose to be married to live into self-sacrifice and self-giving. For those who experience mistreatment, or suffering. There's so much in the New Testament about this. I'll give you one example in 1 Peter 2. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And you want to talk about foolishness by the world's standards? That when you've done nothing wrong and somebody mistreats you, and the, the earthly kingdoms almost all agree, man, you hit back. You come back harder. You come back stronger. You don't, you don't look like somebody spineless in the office when somebody does that to you. And yet, in the ethic of the cross, the way of the cross. We don't see retaliation or revenge as the means by which God is glorified because God is the one who judges justly. There is a promise that someday the king will return and set all things right. He will be on his throne in the new heavens and the new earth with the kingdom fully established and he will judge the living and the dead. So I don't need to get on the judge's stand right now and try and condemn anybody around me, no matter how they're treating me. In every facet of life, the story of the cross and the example of the king should be our meta-narrative. It should be shaping our instincts and our ambitions, how we grieve and how we give, how we love, how we live. To put it in Ephesians 5, verse 1 terms, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Man, I, I got to be honest, this has been a sermon that has been convicting to write because I keep thinking, what story am I really living by? It's easy to gather up like this and shout the story and the fact of Jesus' death, and burial, and resurrection, and then go live like I'm still in charge. In the kingdom of Taylor, man, I want to be in control. And in the kingdom of God, I'm called to open up and surrender to God's lead because he's on the throne. I'm not. In the kingdom of Taylor, comfort is at a premium. And in the kingdom of God, service is the path to joy 
and humility. In the kingdom of Taylor, man, I, I want everything in, in my bank account and in my life to be up and to the right. And in the kingdom of God, sacrifice is not going to be it's not going to be measured on a chart that makes me go, ah, oh, that's the portfolio I want. And I have had to humbly come to God and do what Jesus asked us to do in his first sermon. To repent and believe that the kingdom way of life really is good news for me today. To repent just doesn't just mean to say, oh, I messed up. To, to put it as, as one, one uh, writer paraphrased it, when Jesus says repent and believe the good news, he's saying, give up your agenda and trust me for mine. And for me to come back, I would ask you to ask yourself that same question. What is the Holy Spirit stirring in your heart? What stories have you been living by that are not in line with the story of the kingdom? Because now, available to you and to me is a kingdom way of life that's not just for someday, of eternity. Eternity starts now. Eternal life is available now because the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe this good news for you. And for some of you, repent and believe means to say for the very first time, I'm ready to put my faith in Christ. Christ the King who died on a cross for me to pay for my sins, to redeem me from stories that were lies and that were going to lead to death. But instead, I want to find my story inside of God's story of kingdom life. And we'd love to see you be baptized today. It's available at all of our campuses. Because in, the, in, this, in, this, in baptism, we actually help live out some of the story. We die to ourselves. We're buried with Christ. We're raised to walk in new life. It's one of the ways we celebrate that story. And seeing people take that step and say, that's, that's the story I want to live in. That's the king I want to serve. But for others of us, what we, need to, what we need to open our hands to the Lord and say is, Holy Spirit, would you show me the stories that I need to give up again? Would you show me the agendas and the priorities that are coming from stories that are not written in your book? And to come back and believe this is really good news for every single one of us to be shaped by the cross and follow the crucified king. Let's pray together. God, in your mercy and grace, I ask, would you, would you help us see? Would you give us eyes to see the stories that we need to give up and let go of? And would you fill our hearts with hope and faith that living into your story, following you, our crucified king, really will bring eternal life, a flourishing life, a life with joy and hope and love and peace that is not based just on our circumstances, that is not dependent on how others treat us, but instead is found and rooted in you, like a wellspring of living water inside us that will never dry up. Lord, help us, help us to live into that story. We believe. Help our unbelief. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.